We come to uh, the topic of prayer today, and uh, many of us, we, we, uh, we struggle with this topic. We struggle to pray. We don't know what it is to pray, how we should pray, the words we use when we pray. Some of us have been in prayer gatherings where it seems like a brand new language is rolled out in the midst of this meeting, and you've got to get a thesaurus to figure out what the heck someone's praying about. It adds to the confusion of prayer. Many of us, uh, prayer, we approach it as if it's this uh, refreshing night's sleep, and yet we just lie on the bed awake only to rise in the morning completely unrefreshed and wondering, is this even working? For many of us, we pray because we want to prove that we're Christians, as if the act of praying would somehow validate the faith that we have in God. And all of these are, for sure, struggles that we have when we approach prayer. And if you are here today and you see your relationship to God as a a relationship of obligation or duty, or you see prayer as something that has been tiresome, um, I just, I hope, I hope today that we might be able to see prayer in a new elevated light. That we might be able to lift our spirits from what has been called a low atmosphere of prayer to a higher heavenly atmosphere of prayer, to a state of grace where God is very real to us, that you might see a more excellent way in which prayer could become one of the most delightful experiences of your life, a luxury of heaven. Jesus didn't see prayer as a law or as a rule. He saw prayer as the opportunity for the mission of God to take full effect in the world. And he underscores this truth found here in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. The stories of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. And in our Bibles, if you're not already there, I want you to open it and hold it. I know Christine just read this for us. Thank you. And I just want you to see the text because in our Bibles, it's divided up into three parts. And really, it's a false division. It's really one story with different acts told within it. The nine times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark, who wrote this book, he begins one story, only to interrupt it with another story, and then to come back to that original story, forming like an ABA pattern. Theologians actually call this a Markin sandwich. Aren't you hungry? One story, and then a middle story, and then another story. And Mark might be doing this for a couple of reasons. Maybe it's because the people who are hearing the word or the letter preached to them would be able to understand the conclusion of one story after the next if they had this book-ending process. Or more um, recently, I think we've been uh, led to believe that Mark was a very intentional writer who had a strategy here and wanted to highlight the conflation or the, the two stories coming together, whereby one helps us interpret the other. I think that's what's happening here. And these two scenes, the tree and the temple, they play together on very deep themes in the book of Mark. But for our purposes today, I want us to uh, take a a very simple approach at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. They they show us exactly what God's prayer expectations are for us and what our prayer expectations should be for God. When we gather to pray, what does God expect out of us? And when we gather to pray, what should we expect out of God? Very simple communication principles. Very simple. If you were to sit down over a cup of coffee with a date, or maybe your your spouse, or maybe a grandma or grandparent, there is at play communication expectations. And uh, what is prayer, if not anything but communication? 
So what, do we, what does God expect for his people? What do we expect from God? And we see God's expectations for his people has begun to be, to be unfolded in the middle of these three sort of parts, the, the, the temple scene. Jesus walks into the temple. Here, here he was just hours ago, verse 11 tells us. But he was there late at night, and so he left the city to go stay some Motel 6 outside of Jerusalem. And we struggle to understand Jesus' actions here in part because most of us have no concept for what the temple was like in the first century. Uh, it was more of a mini city than a one-room schoolhouse that we're led to believe. At a minimum, it was and might possibly still be the greatest mega church in history. Uh, the temple complex might be better compared to visiting Wrigley Field. Here, here is a reproduction model of uh, 1966. A guy took some time, he had a lot of time on his hands, to uh, reproduce this out of like Carrera marble and whatnot. Th this would be uh, the temple complex. And you see inside those main pillars all around there, uh, that would be called the Court of the Gentiles. Uh, up those steps sort of leading there would, would lead you into the inner courts. And then that bigger building right there is the, what we would call the, the Holy of Holies. And so you, you, when we talk about going to the temple, really our mind maybe better translates it like going to Wrigley Field. You get off the L stop and there's Wrigleyville. There's all these obnoxious Cub fans everywhere. And then uh, you get into the stadium because... Stand by my statement. <laughs> Proof and point. And so you get into the stadium, right? And uh, I really feel it's is, is really a tremendous experience as a baseball fan because you walk in and it's this glor the glorious confines, right? And, uh, and you walk in. But there are places in Wrigley Field where you can't go. Uh, you can't get into the locker room. You can't get into the dugout. And you can't get behind home plate. Um, you wish you could, but, but there are sections there. And, and um, the court of the Gentiles here, this outside section, is really anyone in, in the world was, was invited and welcomed in. And, and there was supposed to be a mass exchange of cultures and diversity happening in the outside court of the Gentiles. And then the, the religious uh, purity would have, would have really taken its place through those doors into the inner courts where, where uh, Israelites would practice their faith. Jews would have come from all around the Roman Empire to uh, worship God in the temple. And they would have uh, brought with them a tax to pay to the temple. And they would have brought with them either money to purchase a sacrifice for, sort of like a rent-a-sacrifice, or they would bring an animal themselves up the hill, up to Jerusalem, to, to be sacrificed for the atonement of their sins. This being the Passover week, we could have imagined how many thousands of people would have been flocking from all corners of Israel and, and even parts of the Roman Empire as Jews were dispersed to come back to Jerusalem to take part in the Passover uh, celebrations. And so we are led to believe that the, the Jews would have set up, and this was totally okay, would have set up tables in the, 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 the temple to exchange money from all these different parts of the Roman Empire. Different countries, different civilizations, different parts of the Roman Empire, they had different coinage. And some coins were more pure gold and some were less pure. And so you needed a currency exchange to be able to make sure that you're giving the right tax. This is like turbo tax of, of the first century. And this was okay. Uh, this wasn't the issue. 
And likewise, uh, some people would come from such a long distance, their animal might not survive the journey lest it die on the road. You could go and bring money to uh, buy a, a, a sacrifice in the temple. And again, this wasn't a big problem. Uh, this, this was sort of a courtesy of convenience for these people. But what we are led to believe, what, what, what really frustrates Jesus isn't necessarily the fact that uh, there are people exchanging money or exchanging animals. What, what frustrates Jesus is twofold. One, the opportunism in the temple. Because the court of the Gentiles, where all, that whole space there where, where all of that exists, would not be like a corner booth where you could go exchange your money. Would not be like one stand where you'd have like one pigeon that could be sold for thousands of people. The whole court of the Gentiles would have been set up table after table after table after table with thousands of priests and temple workers serving in the temple trying to exchange money for people, give people sacrifices. So much so that we could imagine this whole entire complex just filled, filled with money changers and people selling sacrifices. We get the impression from Jesus that there's a moral component to his anger here. That the priestly system in the temple was systematically robbing the people of God and he was angry over the commercial aspect of the practice. But that, that again would miss the point altogether. At the core of his statement, we read in uh, Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 17. Jesus says this, he says, My house shall be called a house of what? A prayer. A house of prayer. Not a house of commerce, not a house of exchange, but a house of divine communication between God Almighty and those who he's created. The core habit of those gathered together in the temple ought to be the glory and the grace of God Almighty and the sullen humility of his people who dare not look him in the eye. You, you saw how, how big the Holy of Holies would have stood ominously over the whole temple structure, reminding the people that, that you do not look God square in the eye. There was a proper reverence to the temple, a proper respect placed upon prayer. And so, friends... It is right for us this week to gather and pause from our daily monotony and our rituals, even to pause to today in, the, in our, our rhythm on a weekly basis of songs and sermon for us to gather in God's house to make this a house of prayer. This is truly one of the core aspects and attitudes that God requires of us as his people when we come together to worship him. It's prayer. It was always the mission of the temple in the world. Second Chronicles 7, the temple is dedicated. I want to read you this portion of it. This is what God says at the dedication of the temple. He says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And so this is God's expectation for his people, that, that we would gather in humility, that we would seek the Lord, that we'd, we would turn away from our wickedness and our, our wicked ways and our thoughts, that we would acknowledge that before him we are called by his name. God expects us to put prayer, God expects prayer to put us in proper relationship to him and a proper orientation to him where he is great 
And we recognize that we are not. We are in his house, his servants, his children, in need of nothing but him. And when we pray, it's as if God reverses the curse of humanity. When Adam and Eve sinned, the, the curse that God put upon mankind was a curse on the land. And God says here, if you humble yourself, pray, turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. It's almost a reversal of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. So putting this into words, prayer puts us in our proper place before God, which means this. God expects us to bring him our brokenness. When it comes to prayer, what does God expect out of us? God expects us to bring him our brokenness. God acknowledges in 2 Chronicles that we, we ought to be humbled, that we ought to be uh, repentant, that we ought to see our lives the way God sees it, broken in need of healing. And so many people come to God in prayer forgetting their need, forgetting that he is almighty and we are broken. And what does God expect in his house of prayer? The good news, he expects us to come as we are. People who need help. That's good news, isn't it? It's good news that we don't have to come to God in the midst of being perfect. We don't have to come to God feeling like we're good enough to talk to God. You can come to God the way that you are right now if you recognize that you're broken. I've met many people who understand this reality that prayer is rejecting the pretense that everything in my life is okay. Prayer is rejecting the idea that I'm okay on my own. And I've met so many people who lack a filter and will tell you everything about their life that requires prayer. And I need this for prayer, I need this for prayer, I need this, and that's great for us to share. But I've also, it confuses me how I've met so many other people who can't find a single thing to ask God for in their life. Who, who act as if their life is totally fine on their own and have no humility before the Lord. And when it comes to them in, in a moment of a small group or in the moment of uh, even a church gathering that we'll have on Tuesday night where we just ask each other, how can we pray for you? They self-righteously say, oh, no, I'm okay. And friends, prayer refuses to accept the falsehood that we're okay. I mean, in Christ, yes, we have bright hope for tomorrow. In Christ, yes, we are, thank the Lord, not where we used to be. But in, in Christ, we also are growing day by day into the image of him. And for Jesus, prayer is the, the, the way that we engage in, in the mission of God here on this earth, the creation of a family for him. And so prayer expects us to bring God our brokenness. And, and so I, I hope that this week we can bring to the Lord with humility and expectancy that God accepts us in our brokenness and that he can handle the issues in our life. That we might call out to him for the moments in our family that we need help. We might call out to him for the moments that we want to look more Christ-like than we did yesterday. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But um, I only put half of the quote up there. I want to actually put the rest of the Mark eleven seventeen 17 up there. This is what Jesus actually says. He says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Say that with me. For all the nations. And this gets to the fire and fury of Jesus' actions in the temple as he throws over the tables of the money changers and he lets the devs go and he, he keeps people from walking through the court of the Gentiles as he teaches them. 
The court of the Gentiles, it was the only place in the non-Israelites could go in the temple and freely roam. It was their only experience within the walls of God's house. And from the beginning, God created Israel to be a blessing to all the nations. And he tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I've created you that you might be a blessing to all people. And notice what the prophet Isaiah writes about with the foreigner in Isaiah chapter 56. This is what Jesus is actually quoting. He says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring into my holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer, and their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Friends, friends, listen, listen, this is so important. Here's why Jesus was angry. It had little to do with the extra profit that these people were making on the side and way more to do with the overcrowding and the overprioritization of Jewish people in the temple system when they should have been making space for other people to come in. When you fill up the court of the Gentiles, their only opportunity they have to come and hear God with all of your tables and all of your sacrifices and you crowd out the space where they can't come in, you are missing the house of prayer for all nations. You are missing the mission of God. The mission of God has always been that people could come and hear the good news proclaimed by his people. And here's what this shows us about what Jesus is expecting us, what God is expecting of us in prayer. He expects us, he expects us to pray together. And this is a much longer sermon, but when we see the expectation of Jesus that his house would be called a house of prayer for all peoples, all nations, we have to realize that God expected his house to be a place of diversity. And one day, when I say that at this campus, you'll all erupt with applause. Because that's the heartbeat of God. That, that, that God wouldn't just receive praise from a homogeneous population of people who think together and vote together and act together and live together and spend money together the same way. Who work at the same place and send their kids to the same schools and drive the same type of cars. Instead, what God expects out of his house is that it will be a place that represents the corners of the earth for his glory and his fame. That it would be the one unique space in all the earth where people with nothing in common could come together and find they have everything in common. It would be a place that is so passionately seeking the fame and the glory of Jesus Christ and God Almighty that when foreigners come in, they're awed by how powerful this God is. And they would in turn give their sacrifice to him as well. You see, when we come together to pray, it's not just enough for us to come together and pray us together. Um, like if you, if you only pray with the same type of people as you, if you only pray with the same people every week, you're praying wrong. Is that a little too black and white? Feels a little like a harsh statement, but what Jesus is saying is that from all the corners of the earth, the Gentiles are included in this, which means that God's plan is a plan for the redemption of humanity. And my prayer for our church right here in this space, these four, five maybe, walls, is that we would be a, a place of prayer for all the nations. Not just that we would pray for the nations and pray for Portage and Hobart and Lake Station, 
all these areas around us, but to pray for the, the diverse people groups that God has put around us. And I love all of us, but we have a long way to go, don't we? We do. We have a long way to go in this space, and I think one of the things that Jesus would say if you walked in here would be, my house is a house of prayer, yes, but for all nations. And so we pray, God, would you bring nations here, amen? Would we be a church that, that welcomes the nations here, that can put aside our privileged majority position and welcome in those who have been disenfranchised and the other? God expects us then to pray together. That's, that's what God expects from us, to, to recognize our brokenness and to pray together across many lines. But what, what do we expect of God? And this really gets to the second story found in Mark chapter 11, which is the lesson of the fig tree. You say, Dan, what does a fig tree and the temple have to do with each other? Well, a lot. We can nerd out on this later. But, but for our purpose today in prayer, notice this. Jesus curses the tree one day. Uh, he goes in the temple he cleanses the temple. He goes out of, the, out of Jerusalem. Then on the way back in from wherever he's staying, he goes back to Jerusalem. And on the way, Peter says, hey, look, Jesus, remember that thing you muttered under your breath to this tree? Well, check it out. You've got really amazing uh, horticultural powers because it's dead. Like this tree is withered. And we expect Jesus to say, well, yeah, I'm God. Well, yeah, I created Roundup. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm in charge of all things. But he talks instead about prayer. Jesus takes the opportunity to create a teachable moment for us about prayer. And in the temple, he tells us what God's expectation of us is, but in the, in the, next to the fig tree, he tells us what our expectations of God should be. Notice this. Notice what he says. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Listen, when it comes to God's expectations of us and our expectations of God, we, as we, we come to prayer, must expect, we have to expect that God responds to prayer. We have to expect that. We have to, otherwise we are going through religious motions and I have no interest and Jesus has no interest in religious motions. Case in point, the cleansing of the temple. What God desires is for us to have hearts that are so full of faith in him. So many of our experiences show us that, we, God, we asked for something and we, we thought for sure we weren't doubting. We thought in faith you were going to give it to us and then it still didn't come our way. And we struggle with this idea because we've been taught a very simple form of just, just name to God what you want and he'll give it to you like he's your genie. And that's not Jesus' point at all. Jesus is really trying to show us that God responds to prayer. If I had more time, I'd walk you through how Jesus' statements here in Mark eleven twenty-two through 25 our precursor to him going to the cross, dying, resurrecting, and himself becoming the new temple by which believers are gathered together. Jesus says, um, anyone who says to this mountain, he's standing outside of Jerusalem looking up at the temple mount. This mountain literally is the mountain that the temple is built upon. Be thrown into the sea, that's what he says. For so many years, the Jews believed that the Temple Mount was going to be the place where God's glory dwelt forever. 
And Jesus was saying, no, I've come here to replace this system and to make this uh, a faith for all people. And so in my death, burial, resurrection, we're going to be almost as if I'm telling this temple mountain to go into the sea and be done with because my resurrection, my life will be the new temple by which people worship God. Jesus says, it will be done. He says, therefore, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it or you are in the process of receiving it, and it will be yours. The faithful request of God knows his power and knows that God responds, that no matter what's coming our way can be overthrown in the power of Jesus Christ. And so when we pray, we expect God to respond. And it burdens me that too many of us pray without expectation that God wants to join your heart on his mission. It was Phillips Brooks who once said that prayer is not for man to get his way done in heaven, but for God to get his way done on earth. This is why we pray. When we pray prayers of faith, God shows our hearts how he is on the move here and now. I remember uh, three years ago, it was my first... um, one of my first couple of months here in our, in our church, we have these prayer gatherings on Tuesdays, and one of our godly members uh, was sort of bemoaning the fact that not everybody in the whole church showed up for our prayer gathering. And um, I remember someone in the, in the meeting uh, spoke up and said, you know, it's really the people who pray that have a front row seat to watching God work. It's the people who participate in prayer who get to see God at work on the mission building the church. And they're the ones who are going to enjoy the rewards of watching God bless in the future. And how over three years already I've seen that play out as some people who have dedicated their lives to praying for us as a community, for this church, for the work that God's doing, for the the saving of souls here in, in, in this area, have watched as Faithfully they've prayed and faithfully God's responded. And for those of us who haven't had that prayer, life goes on and you come Sunday after Sunday unaware of what God is doing, oblivious to the answered prayers all around us right now. See, see when we pray, we, re- we expect God to respond. And when we pray, we get to see him in the process of responding. And finally, I think this is the last piece. That God expects us to bring him our brokenness and pray together. We expect God to respond in prayer. And finally, we see this parallel thought that we expect God to provide unity. We expect God to provide unity. The clock in this room moves too fast, I swear. And if I had time, I'd show you the symmetry between God's expectations of us in prayer as seen in the temple story and our expectations of God as seen through the fig tree story. Um, But just notice what, what Jesus says in verse 25. Look at verse 25 with me. Um, Whatever you stand praying, whenever you stand praying, forgive. Everybody say that out loud, forgive. Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Here's prayer. We are broken, so we pray. We are divided, so we pray. We pray so we expect God to hear and to bring wholeness. And we pray so we expect God to hear and bring unity. The mission of God on earth is a mission of mending brokenness and bringing unity. Nowhere is that more obvious than a group of people divided from one another. So whenever we stand praying, God says you should forgive. Don't take the opportunity in your prayers to dig in on why you're happy that there are people who are getting their deserved punishment for their sins all over the world. Don't use your prayer to preach your own righteousness. Use the moment of prayer to 
to cry out to God on behalf of your brokenness and to ask God to bring unity in responding for forgiveness. Use the moment to confess, to ask God's grace to forgive us our trespasses. As Jesus taught us to pray as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so today, as we kick off a week of prayer, I'm aware that in just four weeks, we're going to hit a milestone as a campus of having officially launched for three years. And I'm acutely aware that the longer that we gather together and the more people that we welcome into our community and our congregation together, the more weeks we see each other and get to know one another and do life with one another, the more opportunity there is for division and the more opportunity there is for frustration. For the little things of someone's personality to get on your nerves, for you to start picking me apart and and trying to make your judgments on on how I lead, for for you to talk about your small groups and the things that you're seeing, to be blind to the fact that what God wants is for us to come together in brokenness and to come together in unity. So my prayer is just simply this for us, is as we continue to gather together that we would not be a church that does not forgive. It's a bad sentence, but you get what I mean. That we would be a church that understands the value that as we pray, one of the core things we're supposed to pray for is forgiveness. Not, not, not that that person would ask for forgiveness, but that I would ask for forgiveness. That I would have the humility and the brokenness before God to say, this is where I'm wrong. God, would you forgive me? And would my brothers and sisters forgive me? This is the gospel. The gospel is that God brings together that which is broken. He often does it through forgiveness. And he often does it across cultural and religious lives that all might come to know Jesus Christ and his power and his glory, that they might be forgiven from their sins. And the world that God created, the land, might be healed. And that's what we want, amen? That's what we're after. Because that's the mission of God, C3 Church.